February is Black History Month. In healthcare, there's a long, complex history of medical mistrust among Black Americans that is rooted in systemic racism and countless acts of medical exploitation, unethical experimentation, and mistreatment. Repairing trust between Black patients and medical providers requires honest and open dialogue about the lasting impact of injustices that have spanned centuries. In this episode, we'll examine the impact medical mistrust has on health outcomes for Black patients and what action hospital leaders and healthcare teams can take to improve trust. Joining me in studio, I have Lynn Todman, PhD, who serves as Vice President of Health Equity and Community Partnerships for Corwell Health. In this role, Dr. Todman leads efforts to align health equity activities across the integrated health system. She holds both master's and doctorate degrees from MIT in city planning and urban and regional planning. We're very excited to have her here today to speak on this topic, knowing she has extensive experience in leadership and research in health equity, social and structural determinants of health, health impact assessment, urban poverty, and community development. Dr. Todman, welcome to the MyCare Champion Cast, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Lucy. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for being here. I know it was a long trip, so. (laughs) It's all good. (laughs) Well, I had the pleasure of meeting you a few months ago at a Talking Health event uh, in Lansing here, and I always ask guests this question, even though I know the answer for you, because we also just had lunch. Um, And I just would love if you could let our listeners know what led to your current role and, and what do you do in your current role and why did you pick this field? So what led, one question at a time, what yeah. led me to this work? And the way I grew up was very influential in my professional decisions um, trajectory. I, my father was a physician in Chicago. My grandfather was a physician in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, and so providing health care in underserved communities was just kind of in the air that I breathed, mm-hmm. the water that I drank. I took it for granted. I now know that everyone didn't make that kind of choice at the time. Right. Um, the other influential factor was my mother, who was a civil rights activist. And so as a child, I was on picket lines. Mm-hmm. We had lots of books in our house. Um, we had to sit down and watch certain documentaries so that we could understand the history. And so very early on, I had this sense of justice um, and the fact that certain demographics in our in our society didn't have access to things that frankly, were basic human rights, including health right. and access to health care. Yeah. And it makes sense that you would go into the field that you're in now. So what is it that you do in your current role? So I um, am working to align the health equity programming across the organization. I have crafted a strategy for the organization Um, that I am working to align with the regional strategies because we do comprise three care delivery regions, and each of those regions has very specific and distinct health needs. So working to align health equity initiatives across the three care delivery um, systems, align it with the work that Priority Health is doing, um, and then create some kind of coherent a collaborative body of health equity work across the entire enterprise. Mm-hmm. So that's what my work involves. That's a big job. It's a lot of work. Well, knowing that there's so many workforce challenges in healthcare right now, can I ask you, what, what do you love the most about your job? I get to get up every day and work on something that really matters to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everyone can say that. So mm-hmm. I'm very fortunate. Um, this is something that has mattered to me in one form or another since I was a teenager. And um, I, I genuinely do feel very grateful that every day 
I get to spend time thinking about things that can make a difference, a material difference in the lives of, of others. I, um, I work by the creative there, but by the grace of God go I. I grew up uh, in a way that I didn't have to worry about food or housing or education, but I was acutely aware that other people did. And the idea that I can get up every day and address the needs of folks that don't have those resources gives me intense, um, I'm intensely grateful for it. Yeah, that's incredible. That was a wonderful answer. And before pressing record today, you shared a personal story with me that really kind of leads in well to our conversation about medical mistrust. So do you mind sharing that with our audiences? Not at all. <clears throat> it was a very humbling moment. I had just started work in Corwell South, mm-hmm. um, and part of the service area in Corwell South, Corwell South is Benton Harbor, mm-hmm. which is a uh, not well-served uh, community, low wealth, largely African-American. And uh, we were doing our community health needs assessment, and I really wanted to get a sense of what people in the community felt their needs were. So I decided I would go to barbershops in the community and talk to men. Men are particularly disinclined to answer questions about health care. Mm. So I was, you know, kind of laser focused on barbershops. And I went in there with a certain amount of arrogance. Um, I thought, well, I'm African-American. They're going to be open to me coming in and I'll be able to ask questions that, you know, they'll answer. And um, the response I got was jarring. Uh, it was a twofold response once. We've answered those questions before and nothing has become of them. Mm. Okay, so hence the trust issue. Right. <clears throat> but what really struck me was uh, he said, you know, I'm risking my reputation just talking to you. And that was mind-boggling to me. I had never encountered somebody who, for whom my presence Right. Was a source of embarrassment yeah. or jeopardy, professional jeopardy. But it told me a lot about the depth of the distrust of that community in healthcare because mm-hmm. I represented the healthcare system. Um, and it caused me to take a step back and basically reframe my engagement with him. And so, as part of the trust building process, I changed the question. I said, well, what can I do for you? Mm. What can we do for you? So instead of approaching him with, this is what I'd like you to do for me, I asked the question, what can I do for you? Um, The good ending of that story is that I still get my hair cut by Roosevelt Bell in Benton Harbor, Michigan, almost a decade later. So we built that trust. Um, But it was a, a really potent lesson for me in trust. Absolutely. I love that story. I think it's so representative of this conversation and and what we're going to talk about today. So given your expertise and experience, can you share more about the correlation between medical mistrust and health outcomes for Black patients? Yeah. I think there's a um, misperception that the distrust that many groups, so African-Americans, but other groups too, have in healthcare is not rational. Mm -hmm. It's a perfectly rational, protective behavior Um, because um, many communities know from the stories that they hear or the experiences that they've encountered themselves or the history that they're aware of, that outcomes have not been optimal disproportionately for African-Americans. And so it's, it's actually a rational 
uh, protective mechanism to to be distrustful of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, what what happens then is there is um, a decreased willingness to get care in a timely manner, mm-hmm. um, which has all kinds of implications for outcomes and cost. And there is a reluctance to adhere to medical advice if we do go. Right. So, and that has implications for outcomes Mm -hmm. and the cost of care. So that distrust undermines our vision to keep communities healthy um, because people don't come until it's really hard to generate that health that we're Mm -hmm. trying to, to generate in our encounters with patients and communities. Absolutely. And just to paint a picture of what you're speaking about, you mentioned like the fact that there's an unwillingness to seek care in a timely manner and you might pause to follow medical advice. I know that there's a lowered likelihood of adhering to treatment plans and medication regimens. um, And then there's also a lowered likelihood to engage in routine medical screenings and self-screenings. I found that to be fascinating. All of that. So if someone's managing a chronic illness, they're less likely to check their blood pressure because of medical mistrust. Um, the American Cancer Society found that individuals with higher levels of mistrust were less likely to participate in cancer screenings. That's so alarming. And I feel like it's just paints a picture of how serious of an issue this is. And it, you mentioned it, it. It kind of bleeds into everything. Medical mistrust affects people's mental health. It, mm-hmm. There's fear and shame involved. Yeah. So I think that and anxiety and stress. So I mm-hmm. think that it just really, it affects the whole person. Yeah, the entire person. It's not just about physical health, it's about mental health. It's your it's, mental health too. Yeah, and well-being. one of the things that is additionally problematic is that there's a disinclination to participate in trials. Mm. So even as uh, clinicians or researchers want to engage people of color, African-Americans in trials so that the medications and protocols are appropriate and effective, mm-hmm. it's hard to do because people are disinclined to do so because they don't trust. And so it's kind of this vicious cycle. Right. Like you don't trust, you don't adhere to clinical advice, you don't participate in trials. The outcomes are suboptimal mm-hmm. because you haven't you know, kind of adhere to, you know, advice and you haven't participated in trials. So the trials aren't tailored to the specific needs. And it's just this kind of vicious cycle that we engage in. Yeah. Yeah. And you recommended a book for me before this record, Medical Apartheid. And I just, I haven't gotten through the whole thing. It's a, it's a heavy read, but I, I can tell you in the first 50 pages, the amount of history that is behind it. And it just really confirms the validity that you mentioned earlier of how valid and serious the mistrust is and how it comes from a lot of different instances of of mistreatment. So I would just encourage anybody who hasn't read that book to check it out because it was a great, it's just so comprehensive. And I know that you mentioned it's one of the few books that really paints the history in a accurate way. So correct. I appreciate that. And so with the understanding that there is still work to be done, obviously, what action have you seen from healthcare leaders in Michigan or nationally that is moving the needle on addressing some of the social and systemic barriers that affect Black communities? Yeah. Um, Thank you for this question, because I think it's a really important question, like what has worked? Right. Um, Much has not worked. Um, And we can talk about why, Mm -hmm. um, if it's appropriate. But when I think back historically, nationally, in 1965 with the Civil Rights Act, um, there was I can't remember if it was Title VI or Seven, but basically made it such that hospitals could not receive Medicare 
funds if they were segregated. That was a huge incentive yeah. for desegregation of uh, are the hospitals in this country. And within two years, like 95% of the hospitals in the United States were desegregated. Mm-hmm. Now, that didn't necessarily speak to the quality of care, but that's an example of um, a policy decision, a legislative decision that moved the needle forward. So there, we didn't have these segregated wards anymore. Um, you mean these segregated hospitals, completely different right. um, hospital systems for different groups of people. So that was one. And that was a quiet shift. I just want to mention that because uh, I was reading about that and I, I thought it was interesting because what a difference it would have made if hospitals proudly and loudly desegregated. Um, but the fact that it was a quiet shift, I just feel like really feeds that culture of it, it wasn't necessarily... It wasn't embraced. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it was not embraced. I found shocking. Yeah. Um, then the other, you know, more contemporary is the Affordable Care Act and um, the extension of health care insurance to millions and millions of Americans. And so not only did you see the rates of insurance coverage for black people increase, you saw it for low wealth people across demographic groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another example of moving toward equity that happened at the national level. And then on a maybe not so much policy, a legislative level, we do know from the research that racial concordance Mm -hmm. is associated with better health outcomes and narrowing gaps. So, for instance, a study that came out maybe a year ago uh, found that in counties in this country where there was an increased representation of black uh, primary care providers, we saw a narrowing of the life expectancy between black and white people. Mm. Um, And that speaks to that issue of trust. You know, people who go into an exam room with somebody who there's some concordance with, gender concordance, racial, ethnic concordance, Mm -hmm. um, where there's so much, um, there's less need to explain context and background. There's a baseline understanding. There's a baseline understanding. You don't have to start from square one. Right. And you get better outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so that's an example of the kinds of things. And I know that hospitals are working, you know, at various levels of effort to diversify their workforce. Mm -hmm. I do think that people miss the health implications of a diversified workforce. Often it gets this notion of diversifying our workforce, um, you know, the, the rationale stops that we should have a racially, ethnically diverse workforce. Well, true. And if we do that, we're going to be able to reach our patients mm-hmm. and build the trust to get better health outcomes than we otherwise would. So there's Absolutely. very much a health equity um, component of this notion of racial concordance and diversifying your workforce. Right. So those are a few examples. And just to build off the cultural competency piece, it's kind of ties to that patient-centered care of it's important to have providers who take the time to understand, even if they they don't look like their patient, they take the time to understand the culture and the belief system of every individual that walks through their doors. Would you say that plays a big role in trust? Yeah, it does. Even acknowledging, I don't know your experience. Mm-hmm. I'm acknowledging with humility that I don't know your experience, but I'm here to listen to your experience exactly. and integrate that into your care plan. Or, yeah. So, yes. And understanding the socioeconomic factors that they may be facing or, or, or don't have as barriers, I think, 
is really important too. So, yeah, that speaks to something else that um, may be another show. This mm-hmm. notion. So the AMA and some of the medical schools across the country and residency programs are starting to understand we have to evolve from cultural competency to structural competency. Mm-hmm. So that means understanding the structural systemic forces that brought you to this place today. Right. And so understanding people's cultural kind of context and background is really important, but also understanding those structural forces, you know, um, the things that make housing available or not available in your community or mm-hmm. nutritious food available or not available in your community. Those things are also important. So we're starting to hear more around structural competency as a complement to cultural competency. Absolutely. To and, close gaps. And access has a lot to do with how people receive information too. Communication is such a huge part of it. And I feel like a few people we've had on the podcast talk about collaboration being so important and making sure that healthcare leaders and hospital representatives are connecting in the community, in faith-based organizations, in, you know, health fairs, educational workshops. Like there's opportunities to take your expertise outside of the hospital and you can reach people in a really meaningful way. Yeah. One thing that occurs to me as I listen to you in my own personal experience and engaging with healthcare is, you know, I I am a well-read individual. And there are times, many times, that I don't understand what my physicians are telling me. Mm. The acronyms, the shortcut language. When you're talking about communication right? Um, and, you know, kind of this slippery slope to health literacy, mm-hmm. what's really important for me uh, to share with individuals, because it is a part of closing these disparity gaps, is the literacy issue has to happen on the side of us as providers as well. Right. So we have to change the way we communicate using plain language. So it's not just um, translation skills mm-hmm. or translation services. It's like using terms that resonate and that have meaning to people. Because yeah. if someone like myself goes into it and I leave my doctor's office, I'm like, oh my gosh, I took two pages of notes yeah. and I still don't understand what they were talking about. Right. Then we have a literacy issue on both sides. And that literacy issue, which we often paint as a problem of the, of the patient, mm-hmm. is also a problem of the provider and mm-hmm. also contributes to these inequities because people don't really understand what they're being asked to do sometimes. Right. And if you're going in with already sort of your handout and, and you already have a certain level of mistrust, the comfort it takes to say, I don't know what you just said. You know, exactly. that takes a lot of vulnerability. Yes. Like, so I don't, yes. I don't know what you just said to me. I don't understand. That's a scary thing for anybody to do, let right. alone somebody who doesn't feel, right. you know, authentically comfortable right. within the space. So exactly. I, I appreciate you mentioning that. Mm-hmm. The only other thing that came to mind to me for me that we haven't touched on is data. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that identifying gaps in care and community health assessments and things of that nature are, are really important to addressing the gaps that exist. You have to identify them before you can start to tackle them. So I just want to mention that as well as, as and obviously policy change at the local and national level, but also at the organizational level. Exactly. And that that is um, certainly how we're thinking about it at Corewell. You've got to have changes in clinical behaviors, the behaviors of our organization, the context that people come from, and all that is shaped by, you know, policies and practices at municipal, state, and federal levels. It all works together. Absolutely. So where do you feel a more comprehensive purview is needed in this space? I think the way we think about care, when you ask me a question about, you know, a more comprehensive approach, 
the model of care that I think needs to emerge is one that eliminates the silos that we've created between clinical care and community health and these larger structural forces. Right now, the way we're trained as individuals in higher ed, we're trained to go deep in one area. We're trained to be in silos. We're less likely to be trained to think across disciplines or transcend disciplines Mm -hmm. so that someone who's trained like me knows a little bit about how clinicians think what their frames are, what their concerns are, and their goals. But clinicians also have to know how community health people think and their goals and their limitations. Mm -hmm. And so the model that I think needs to emerge is one that eliminates these silos, that coordinates clinical interventions with interventions that take place in the larger organization, with interventions that take place within the community, with interventions that need the support of legislative and policy reforms. Right. So, for instance, in a clinical setting, when I talk to some of my, my colleagues in the women's health service line, they will say among the things that are getting in the way of optimal outcomes for women and closing disparities is housing insecurity. Mm. So... That's a change in clinical behavior. Like, we're going to take care of your medical needs, but we're also starting to pay attention to these social needs. Right. Then the organization, what we see at Coral, needs to change its behavior and start putting in place an apparatus to connect people to address their health-related social needs. So we have a whole new apparatus that didn't exist a decade ago connecting people to housing resources, for instance. Right. But that needs to, in order for that to be sustained over time, like we can't just send people to housing shelters all the time. That's not a sustainable solution. Right. So then there has to be community interventions to create a housing stock in communities that's affordable and accessible to pregnant people. Mm-hmm. That may require municipal legislation around zoning or Uh, adherence to ordinances around um, infestation or... So the thing is we have to... These things have to be coordinated. If if our clinicians are saying housing insecurity is getting in the way, Mm -hmm. as an organization will say, we can connect you to housing to help you out for the next two to three to six months. Mm. But something has to change in our community to create a stable housing, affordable housing stock for our pregnant people. And that might require some legislative or policy intervention. Mm That way of thinking is a more comprehensive way of addressing the needs as opposed to this ad hoc body of work that we've done historically and siloed work. Right. Do you think that the fact that people are paying closer attention to the social determinants of health, do you think that's a step in the right direction because people are recognizing health is influenced by so many different things? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's really important that clinicians and healthcare systems understand this. This concept is 100 years old. I mean, it comes out of public health. It comes out of social work. At mm-hmm. the turn of the 19th century, you had, you know, those social workers who were going out, and they understood the connection between health. Somehow, and that's another podcast, too, this right. different model of providing health care 
kind of took hold of our healthcare system and we separated those two, you know, the kind of social conditions and community and how that impacts health. Mm-hmm. One other thing that's really important to know is that there's a very practical connection between these social determinants and health, but also um, what we haven't spent a lot of time thinking about is that these social conditions also impact health through the brain and the nervous system. Mm -hmm. So not having housing has practical implications for you. You can't cook, whatever, but also the stress induced by it Mm -hmm. that impacts your brain, the central nervous system, every organ in your body. So there's two pathways by which these social conditions Mm -hmm. impact health. And if you are a member of a a population that's disproportionately exposed to these stressors, you're going to see disparate health impacts as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important to understand. Yeah, on a practical level, we need to get people housed. You know, like that's very tangible, house people. Right. What's not as as visible is the stressors associated with mm-hmm. being housing insecure, what that does to the brain, the central nervous system, and how that impacts every organ in your body and your health. And also the culture of, of their stigma involved, especially when it comes to housing, is, is the example you used it's when you're walking, when you do get to the doctors, if you get to the doctors, how you're being perceived is probably weighing very heavy on your mind, and that's going to get in the way of receiving care. Or you know? disclosing what you need to disclose exactly. about your situation. Being honest and open, yeah. I do want to share a story that was really uh, an epiphany for me in my journey, um, because I didn't always understand this connection. Um, I'm a Chicagoan by birth and early upbringing. I left the city for about two decades and came back to the city um, and was really struck by the changes in Chicago, mm-hmm. beautiful lakefront, et cetera, et cetera. And I decided to take a drive through some of the South Side communities that I, I grew up in. Um, the South Side, contrary to what many people think, has some very nice parts and has parts that, you know, kind of like earn the reputation, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but much of the South Side was really, it was vibrant. You know, there wasn't a lot of wealth, but it was vibrant and people had a sense of hope and possibility. And I was driving through the South Side on a sunny day, kind of looking at the city through the lens of, oh my gosh, you know, I've been gone for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I just noticed how it had degraded. And there are lots of reasons why it had degraded. Um, like Michigan, a lot of manufacturing jobs had gone and people were more, mm-hmm. you know, less likely to be employed. But I'm, I'm sitting in front and I come to a, a, a stoplight in front of Robert Taylor Homes, which no longer exists for good reasons. And um, at that moment, I see movement and I, I turn to see this woman on, on the street, pull her pants down, squat and urinate on the street. And my knee-jerk response was, what is wrong with her? Mm. And then, I mean, I was like, oh, my God, what, on what planet does that make sense? And then very shortly after that, I went to work with mental health professionals, and I realized that I had been asking the wrong question. And we're trained to ask the wrong question. And the, the right question that I know now is, does she have a place to live? Mm-hmm. Does she have food to eat? Is she being abused on a regular basis? Like, all, what is the context of her right. life? Why is she in this position where yeah. she needs to what, do that? What happened yeah. to her? Yeah. And I think this this whole like a move to the social determinants of health to your to your 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 earlier question is a reflection of that evolution of our collective mm-hmm. thinking. Like, you know, I think most people don't want to be unhealthy. Right. You know, the question is, do they live in an environment? Do they have the resources they need 
to be healthy. Right. And that reminded me of a conversation we had uh, prior to this record about ego and how much, I mean, the fact that you had the thought, why did I just think that is profound because there are people, and I think that a lot of hospitals are starting to implement some unconscious bias training, which helps us think about our thinking, but it has to become a practice. You have to really ask yourself like, wait, why did I just have that thought or what is my belief attached to this? And is it accurate? And is it assuming something about somebody? And just how how largely we have to totally take our ego out of the conversation. We can't be afraid of the conversations. We can't be afraid of what we don't know. We can't be afraid that we've been thinking about the problem wrong for a long time. Right. And this goes back to the issue of trust. If that woman's ability to trust anybody would be directly linked to that person's capacity to see the whole human being, to see Mm -hmm. everything that she is having to uh, navigate and not blame her Mm -hmm. for the situation she's in. That goes a long way toward trust, building trust. Absolutely. I have a friend who um, lives in Philly, and she got food poisoning like two years ago, and the paramedics came, and she noticed they were just treating her as if, it was like a drug-related incident, and they weren't helping her down the stairs. Mm. And she was like, I have food poisoning. But th- they were treating her differently b- based on an assumption. Mm-hmm. And I just can't even imagine how often that's happening. This is a white woman, mm-hmm. you know, and she lived in a, a right. nice apartment. It's right. not—it doesn't take a lot for people to just assume things. Well, do you think she trusted the paramedics? Probably not. Exactly. And one of the things you said to me— before today that has really stuck with me is that there's a difference between earning trust and earning trustworthiness. Uh, There's a distinction there that's really important. And when we go back to the validity of medical mistrust that exists in Black communities, it's understandable that earning that trustworthiness would take so much time um, and effort. And I just, I think that understanding, even breaking down the language we use, we say earn trust for a reason. So bearing that in mind, how would you say hospitals and healthcare workers can address patient mistrust in a way that is authentic, compassionate, and effective? Yeah. I think when I have been successful in building trust, I don't overcommit. Mm-hmm. I do what I say I'm going to do, and I show up. It's as simple as that. And there's a persistent, you have to do it. When it's inconvenient, you have to show up. When it's mm-hmm. inconvenient, you have to do what you say you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And you have to do that over and over and over again. So I would say on an individual level, that's one thing that those of us who work in healthcare systems can do. Don't overpromise and do what you say what you're going to do and show up. The other thing that I have just learned about five or seven years ago, I when I realized this thing, trust was a thing, um, you know, I was doing the CHM. I'm like, oh my God, they don't trust me. Barbara doesn't trust me. CHM. Uh, I'm going to call you on an acronym. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, community health needs assessment that perfect. every healthcare system. Thank you. Has I to just do. want to make sure if I no, didn't know. Thank you. You know, I'm, I'm product of my system. <laughs> but um, we started doing this research on trust, and I have had to move away from it because of the evolution of my roles. But I reached back out to Heather Rudnick, who I had been doing this work with, and um, you know, I said, so what are the most recent findings? And she said something that was so fascinating to me. She said, Lynn, what we're learning is that healthcare systems can build trust with their patients and the communities they serve by ensuring that their employees trust them. 
Mm. I said, tell me more. She said, when employees feel that they can trust their employer, their the healthcare system, when they feel there's transparency, when they feel safe reporting a safety event, when they feel trust, their narrative, when they go into the communities that they live in, is going to be one of trust, of trust. Like, you should trust this system because I trust this system and I work mm-hmm. for this system. When communities, when uh, our own people, our own team members don't trust the institution, they basically go back into community and affirm the community's sense of distrust. So one of the, the most basic and frankly challenging things that healthcare systems can do first is to make sure that their own employees trust them mm-hmm. and that they, their own employees feel that there's a certain level of transparency because in many ways, they're, the healthcare system's biggest asset in terms of becoming trustworthy are their their own team members. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that they can do. You know, another thing that I I would say is further down the list is develop relationships with community-based organizations because they're a nice intermediary between the healthcare system and the community. However, there's always that phenomenon that I ran into, that the community-based organizations association with the healthcare system will make those community-based organizations less trustworthy to the community. Wow. That's what I experienced, right? Mm. Because I was affiliated with the hospital. Right. Even though it's an African-American woman, it's an African-American community, it was like that affiliation still caused some, you know, kind of concern, like, can I trust this person? Mm-hmm. But I do think probably those, that the first and the second things, I think just do what you say you're going to do. Don't overcommit and show up and be, and do it when it's not convenient for you. And work on making sure that your own people trust you. Yeah. They'll be your your best asset in building community trust. Yeah. And have open dialogue and, and don't be afraid to ask questions and be authentic. And Listen. We were talking before this podcast about how what a difference it can make. And this is obviously not a, a you know, it's a little sillier of an example, but telling your patient they can call you by your first name. It's something, just making yourself accessible, Yeah, you know, and approachable and accessible, yes. And don't use acronyms. Right. <laughs> or call your doctor out if they are. No. I, I, right. I, uh, don't be afraid to, I should You're say. Right, yeah. um, so I, I want to just quickly ask one more question because I had another thought as you were talking. When it comes to being kind of siloed naturally based on how things are formatted in, in this industry— how would you encourage a fellow provider uh, to get out of their own silo? Where, What resources have you used to educate yourself on, say, community health or public health? Um, how do you go about taking the time to learn about other facets of health? Mm-hmm. That's a really tough question because the way— healthcare is dispensed today, mm-hmm. physicians don't have a lot of time right. or bandwidth. And I I will admit to trying to figure that out myself. How do we engage clinicians and providers in a context and at a time where we don't have enough people to do the work of the organization? Right. And so um, this work is perceived to be as extra. When in fact, if we do this work well, we actually mitigate the burden on clinicians. Mm-hmm. If, we, if we do this work well, this equity work well, and keep uh, populations that experience these disparities healthier, you actually lessen the burden 
uh, uh, on the provider. Now it takes a minute, mm-hmm. it takes some time, but that that is, um, you know, you do CMEs, um, you do conferences, and you mm-hmm. know, you do modules, education right. modules. It's it's not easy because they don't they don't have a lot of time. Right. Um, but I think one of the things that I try to communicate is is it's not solely the clinician's role to do this. Right. Remember I said we need to rethink the care model, that it's mm-hmm. what happens in the clinical setting. That informs what happens in the organization, how do we change our behavior, organizational behaviors, and then community. So there are these other partners that need to be part of the, the dialogue and helping clinicians understand you're not doing this alone. Right. There's no expectation for you to do this alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is a difficult challenge. I mean, with the 15 minute visit, yeah. productivity requirements. Absolutely. It's hard. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you so much. I know you're such a busy woman and I just okay. appreciate you so much coming all the way uh, from Benton Harbor to to the studio. And I, I think this is just such a valuable conversation and there's a lot to take away from it. So is there anything that you didn't touch on that you would like to um, in, in regards to this topic? No, just thank you very much for having me. And um, you have my number. Yeah. And I will be calling you. <laughs> thank you so much. You're quite welcome. And thank you for listening to the My Care Champion cast. We encourage anyone interested in educating themselves more about this topic to head to our newsroom at mha.org or visit the resources linked in the episode's description. To learn more about Corwell Health, head to corwellhealth.org.